This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. come to think that the novel is probably the greatest forum for ideas that we have. Kierkegaard's Either Or is a kind of novel. Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov is certainly a philosophical novel. And the great possibility that the novel has that I think argumentative philosophical positions do not have is that you can occupy a number of different discourses and a number of different positions at once. So you can create a cacophony of philosophical ideas, which means that the reader does not have to choose, and also that it's not finally teleological in the sense that a argument is that it keeps narrowing, narrowing, and then you arrive at an answer. The novel can tolerate ambiguity in ways that argument can't, so that the novel is a form of both ambiguity and polyphony. Can a novel change the way you think? Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. On this week's show, American novelist and essayist, Sari Hustvedt, explores the nature of ideas, cultural misogyny, and the status of women in the 21st century. And do we need to choose ourselves? Award-winning British novelist and dramatist Robert Ferguson teases out essential life lessons from the father of existentialism, the great Soren Kierkegaard. This is a show about art and inspiration, feminism and femininity, and the surprising joy to be found in cultivating dissatisfaction. But first, living thinking and reading. Last week, the Booker shortlist for 2014 was announced and true to form, it made for very interesting, if a little bewildering reading. Now, while I agreed with some of the choices on the long list, well, the shortlist, I have to say, was very disappointing. So first of all, let me give you a run through of who made the long list and then I'll bring you through the shortlist. Okay, on the long list included... Karen Joy Fowler for We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves. You may remember we had Karen on the show over the summer. Also on the list were heavyweights such as Howard Jacobson for B, The Narrow Road to the Deep North by Richard Flanagan, The Bone Clocks by David Mitchell, Us by David Nichols, Noel Williams, History of the Rain, Orpheo by Richard Powers, How to Be Both by Ali Smith, The Lives of Others by Neil Mukherjee, To Rise Again at a Decent Hour by Joshua Ferris. The Wake by Paul Kinsnorth and The Dog by Joseph O'Neill. So who made it on to the prestigious shortlist? Okay, here goes. Howard Jacobson, Ali Smith, Neil Mukherjee, Joshua Ferris, Karen Joy Fowler and Richard Flanagan. Now, while I was delighted to see Richard Flanagan, Ali Smith and Karen Joy Fowler feature on the list, I was very disappointed to see that Niall Williams and David Mitchell didn't make the shortlist. Another major oversight, and now it's only my opinion, is the fact that my next guest, Siri Hustford, didn't make the final six for her superb book, The Blazing World. 
The Blazing World tells a provocative story of artist Harriet Burden and her fury and frustrations at not being taken seriously by the New York art world. So what does Harriet do? Well, Harriet decides to take quite drastic measures and she embarks on a unique social experiment on the nature of cultural misogyny. And this is where I think the novel really takes off. Harriet hides her identity behind three male fronts who display her work as their own. However, what Harriet does not anticipate is the reaction she gets when she comes clean to the New York art world and unmasks herself as the creative force behind these three high-profile exhibitions. Some in the business, well, they just don't believe her story. So here's a little taster of the opening lines of the book. I think you'll agree they're quite snappy. All intellectual and artistic endeavours, even jokes, ironies and parodies, fare better in the mind of the crowd when the crowd knows that somewhere behind the great work or the great spoof, it can locate a cock and a pair of balls. Seri Husfit is an enormously prolific writer and one artful, deft and erudite thinker. Apart from her many books of fiction, her poetry and her tremendously interesting essays, she also finds the time to write for the New York Times and Psychology Today. Her notable books include What I Loved, A Plea for Eris, The Blindfold, Yonder, The Shaking Woman or A History of My Nerves, The Summer Without Men, Living, Thinking, Looking and The Enchantment of Lily Dow. Today, Surrey lives in New York with her husband, the writer Paul Orster. Surrey's books have been translated into over 30 languages and, needless to say, have picked up numerous awards. Well, one of the hot tickets at the Dublin Writers Festival this year was The Evening with Surrey Hustfit. And I have to say, she didn't disappoint. Book lovers, fans and general hangers-on got to enjoy her trademark cynicism mixed with courageous outbursts of emotion and wit. Surrey's quite a lady. A bit scary, but unquestionably hugely entertaining. After the event, I browsed through a few books with Surrey at Dublin's trendy gutter bookshop. I started out by asking Surrey about her unique approach to reading. Surrey says she reads against herself. Let's take a listen. When I was actually very young, still a college student, I remember reading works of philosophy, reading a certain writers, and I thought, wow... These people can move back and forth among disciplines with a kind of ease that I really envied. And in my uh, late middle age, as it were, I have realized that over time, because I've moved into a number of different fields from the sciences to the humanities, I have gained a kind of flexibility that has come from precisely this, that rather than pursuing only the texts that I find sympathetic to my own personality, if you will, or my own thought processes. I read often books that I have almost an antipathy for. This has, I think, helped sharpen my mind and has helped me understand what it is that I care most about and why I... um, resist some ideas and embrace others. So you're challenging your understanding, but you're also clarifying your understanding at the same time. Is that right? I think that's exactly right. Now, it always happens, and this is the beauty of reading, that during the course of a book that you may 
believe is against you, that you have not much sympathy for, becomes an important book, becomes a book that you end up embracing or embracing in part. So that's the great adventure, I think, of ideas. And um, this can happen both in fiction and nonfiction. And how have your ideas changed as you've got older? I know that you've had some health challenges in your own life. And I'm wondering, how has that shaped you as a writer and shaped your compassion Mm. for writing, but also your compassion for what you don't know or can't understand or maybe can't fight? These mysteries remain. I am very interested in questions of personality and character and how they shape one's attraction to ideas. So William James, a writer that I admire very much, once said that there were always tender and tough philosophers, and he put them into two categories. I think this remains the case, that depending on your story, on your character, probably on genetics as well, you know, genetic temperament, we are pushed in one direction or the other. And, uh, you know, no one is born an engineer. No one is born a poet. We gravitate towards these forms of expression for a reason. But it it remains mysterious exactly how that process unfolds. And I think, hence, I have become very interested in, in all the three dimensions of human life. So it's the biological, the psychological, and the sociological. But they are not really distinct. There's blur between each of those categories in the human being. And I suppose in ways it's the interplay to stronger or lesser degrees in each of them that shapes up how we all are and our creativity with our given situation. Yes, I'm also interested in the roots of creativity. And there is a quote that I love to think about. Einstein was once asked by the mathematician Jacques Hadamard about how he worked. And he said, none of my work has anything to do with signs, either linguistic or mathematical. My work is visual, muscular, and emotional. It's a very deep comment about Mm. creativity. And I do think whether one is a physicist or a poet, the roots of creativity are the same. They change depending on the signs that we use. Absolutely. And physics, uh, the ideas in physics, of course, that have gained acceptance are tested in ways that poems can never be tested. But nevertheless, I think Einstein's comment remains one of the great insights into how creativity Mm -hmm. works. Can we talk a little bit about Kierkegaard, the philosopher? I know his ideas have been very influential to you as a writer and as a human being. He's a very rich thinker, but maybe Mm -hmm. has been overlooked. I think that Kierkegaard is so diabolically complicated, actually, that this is one of the questions with him, that he's so ironic and so complicated that entrance to Kierkegaard really takes a great deal of work. I first read Fear and Trembling when I was 15 years old. I was profoundly moved by it. I have since read it several times, and I asked myself, what was it that the 15-year-old got from it? And I think it was the emotional felt intensity that Kierkegaard communicates, and which is actually part of his philosophy. I gave a keynote lecture at a conference on Kierkegaard in Copenhagen for his 200th birthday, and the 
I wrote, talked about his pseudonyms and made an argument that in Kierkegaard, the particular, the subjective, as every Kierkegaard scholar knows, is inside also the storytelling itself. The fictional aspects of Kierkegaard are part of the philosophy. This is not a general position, I can tell you. I have come to think that the novel is probably the greatest forum for ideas that we have. Kierkegaard's Either Or is a kind of novel. Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov is certainly a philosophical novel. And the great possibility that the novel has that I think argumentative philosophical positions do not have is that you can occupy a number of different discourses and a number of different positions at once. So you can create a cacophony of philosophical ideas, which means that the reader does not have to choose, and also that it's not finally teleological in the sense that a argument is that it keeps narrowing, narrowing, and then you arrive at an answer. The novel can tolerate ambiguity in ways that argument can't, so that the novel is a form of both ambiguity and polyphony. But some readers find ambiguity very, very challenging. (laughs) on a creative level, on a moral level, and that they would shoot you down on that and say, that's where novels go all wrong. Of course, but of course, in a way, a great deal of of novel writing is generated unconsciously, and some of us simply have no choice. Your latest book deals with the challenges of face women and communicating to the world and being recognised. Can you talk to me a little bit about it? Well, it does seem that the old Western division between the mind and the body, the mind as a masculine entity and the body as female goes on. I mean, it's rather startling to me, actually, but it's, I think, very much present in contemporary culture. And I think particularly in the arts that have been regarded for a very long time as a feminine form, that if you have a man doing the arts, you masculinize and enhance the arts. Whereas in the sciences, for example, if a woman is doing science, she's masculinized by doing the science. So we have these categories that are quite fixed in the culture, and they continue to generate themselves ad nauseum. And I suppose my book is trying to complicate that dualism. And are women just as irresponsible as men for generating those categories? I think women are often actually in many, many psychological studies testified to this fact that women are just as sexist as men and perhaps not just as, but very often. So we internalize these categories and we act on them and they become part of our perception. So I don't think that women are off the hook and I don't think men are to blame. I think much of this prejudice is implicit or unconscious and that the way out is quite truly to become conscious of it.
and that was American novelist and critic Seri Hustvedt. Seri's latest offering, The Blazing World, is published by Simon & Schuster and retails at about €14. Euro. Now, if you're new to Seri's writing, well, brace yourself. This lady ain't for the faint-hearted reader. That said, she's well worth the intellectual rough and tumble. OK, coming up next, fear and trembling. In the 21st century, we're going to breeze through some of Soren Kierkegaard's best reads. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. Now, if you've been snoozing through any of our recent shows, well, don't worry. They're all up as podcasts on the programme webpage. All you need to do is visit www.newstalk.ie forward slash talking books. And I think there should be a reasonably decent range up there at this stage and something suited to all your reading tastes. Now, I'd just like to say a big thank you to all those who took the time to email the show this week. It's always lovely hearing from you. Really lovely. And it's great getting your opinions on all the books and authors we're covering on the show. So keep the emails coming in to talkingbooks at newstalk.ie. Okay, let's get back to this week's show and move into the awe-inspiring healing world of Søren Kierkegaard. Søren Kierkegaard was a Danish philosopher, literary stylist, theologian and possibly the world's greatest workaholic. Born in 1813 in Copenhagen, his philosophical works address themes such as living as a single individual, love, work, despair and the importance of personal choice in everyday life. His big reads include Repetition, Fear and Trembling, Three Discourses on Imagined Occasions and my own personal favourite, Either Or. Well, a very handy book has just been published on the life and legacy of Søren Kierkegaard. Life Lessons from Kierkegaard aims to be an accessible introduction to the philosopher as well as a guide to how his teachings apply to modern life. It's hugely entertaining, surprisingly relevant and really rewarding. Think philosophy meets self-help. Now, Life Lessons from Kierkegaard offers the reader very smart ideas on an extraordinary range of themes. For example, we get how to wake up, how to see through things, a very helpful how to avoid living in the past and why we should cultivate dissatisfaction. Now, one that particularly stood out to me was on not thinking too much. But then again, topics like when to say nothing, how to deal with despair and choosing to choose, I think are relevant for everyone. Now, the good news is that this neat little book retails at about €8 in paperback and is available on Kindle for a steal at just under €5. Robert Ferguson is a philosopher, historian and dramatist. Born in England, Robert now lives in Norway, where he has published biographies on Henrik Ibsen, Knut Hamsun and Henry Miller. Robert has also published The Vikings A History, The Hammer and the Cross, A New History of the Vikings, Last Love, Fleetwood, And he's also written 11 award-winning radio plays for the BBC. Well, last week I gave Robert a shout at his home in Oslo and put it to him, Soren's classic line, that life can only be understood backwards, but must be lived forwards. That's 
quote appealed to me immediately. It struck me immediately as being true. It's the kind of thing where you never articulated it to yourself. But when you come across an articulation of it, you realize instantly it's the way you've always thought about life. And I think basically what he meant was that we're so busy living that we don't have time to understand it. And what he was looking for, and of course it's almost impossible quest, but he was looking for somewhere where you could live forwards and at the same time somehow understand where you've been. The important thing about that was, was the articulation of it, the fact that that is the great problem in life. If you're trying to understand life, why are we here? What am I doing? Where am I going? You're so busy taking care of business in the present moment and, and, and looking out what's coming up in the next bend in the track that it's very, very difficult to take the time out to sit and, well, where have I been? How did I get here? What's it all about? And he simply pointed out the extreme difficulty of doing that. And yet also, if you like, the intellectual necessity of trying to do it. Robert, can you tell me about your own love affair with Kierkegaard? I know that you've been living in Norway for the last 30 years. Kierkegaard is a Danish philosopher. He's also a very complex character. So can you tell me how you got interested in him? I'd heard of him a long time before I actually got interested in him. When I first came to Norway, I was studying in, in Bergen, and I met a young Faroese man from a fishing family, and, and the only books he had with him were Kierkegaard's complete work. You know, I was fascinated by that and by his fascination with Kierkegaard. This was in the 80s, you know, and it was really not very fashionable. And anything to do with religion, was, or particularly Christianity, was considered to be a complete no-no. People just turned away from it. And it was only much later on when I was writing a biography of Henrik Ibsen, the Norwegian dramatist, and studying Brand, this play about a priest, which was his breakthrough play in, in Norway and in Europe generally. And many people said at the time that this was actual fact Ibsen's attempt to create a Kierkegaard-like character, a fundamentalist, a person with a fanatic belief in the need to be yourself, in the need to, to be yourself at all costs, to be true to yourself. And that is when I was writing the book on Ibsen and investigating a little bit closer whether or not I thought that was the case, whether or not I thought Ibsen really had used Hikigori as a model, that's when I really began taking Hikigori seriously as a thinker. And Robert, you reference a lot of writers in the book and how Kierkegaard has influenced them. And I know you mentioned Henry Miller and Albert Camus and other such writers, mm. that he had a fundamental impact on thinkers in general. Yes, he did. I mean, nowadays, people think of him as the father of existentialism. You know, the, this is Camus, as you say, it's Sartre. And what they did was pick up on most of what he said, but they just stopped short at the, the religious thing, which was Hikigod's last stage. You know, Hikigod divided life basically into four sequential stages, the Philistine, the aesthetic, the ethical and the religious. And thinkers like Sartre and Camus and Simon de Beauvoir, the existentialist, this was a revelation to them what he wrote, the modernness of his mind, the admission that we're thrown into this world without the faintest idea why. We have no choice. We didn't ask to come here. If we want to complain to the manager, there is no manager. And the existentialists took the choice, took the consequences of that, but they stopped short of turning to religion, of taking this leap of faith of which Hikigo writes, into religion. They just stopped short and, and contented themselves, if you like, with his analysis of the human condition, the need to make choices and to take complete responsibility for yourself and your own life. He was such a courageous writer. But what's even more unbelievable, Robert, is that he wrote Either Are and Fear and Trembling in the same year. That's unbelievable. Yeah. He was so prolific and brilliant at the same time. It's a hard one to do. He was extraordinarily prolific. I mean, he died when he was 42. And you, you, I've got his collected work on my shelves here that's a, it's a half a metre of thick books but basically that's all he did I mean one of the most striking things about him is this tragic love story he had with this young woman called Regina Olsen Regina Olsen whom he really did love and he was engaged to her and 
within a year of the engagement, he broke it off, giving her no reason at all. But in fact, the reason was, as he later reveals in his journals and notes, is that in his case, it was either or he had to choose. He realised he had a mission to be a writer and to articulate his vision or to become a normal, happily married family man. He did not think he could combine the two. So in a sense, he sacrificed not only Regina, because in fact, she went on and had a fairly happy marriage with somebody else, but he sacrificed his own human happiness chances of completely personal, everyday happiness in order to pursue in this prodigious way this vision he had. And yes, it is. It's, it's a remarkable thing. I mean, he, he hardly traveled. He went to Berlin a couple of times. He, went, he traveled a little bit in Copenhagen, but he simply wrote. He stayed indoors and wrote. And that's how he got it done, by a tremendous effort of self-sacrifice. And Robert, it's interesting that, you know, choice was so important to him. He writes about how we all need to reflect and take silent time and to really think things through. But he seems to have wrestled strenuously with his own decisions in life. like leaving the love of his life and devoting his time to writing. So it's almost ironic, really, isn't it? It is. Either or is a very large book, but the most famous part of it is this section usually called the, The Seducer's Diary about this man, Johannes, and his pursuit of this woman, Cordelia. And he said afterwards, or in his private note, he depicted himself as rather old-fashioned word, but as a complete cad in his pursuit of this woman, that he portrays the seducer as a man who's engaged in an aesthetic quest to see if he can, in fact, seduce this woman, get her to love him. And as soon as he gets the declaration of love, then he's off. The interest is gone. It's like the quest is everything. Achieving the goal is nothing. The quest is everything. He claimed to write that seducer's diary so that Regina would think, well, how lucky I am not to have married that man. Do you know? He tried to make out that he was the most appalling human being. Whether or not she believed it, I don't know. But throughout his life, he was haunted and tormented by this until the very end. I mean, he even left. By the time he died, he he had considerable personal financial means. His father was a very wealthy man. And he also had got a lavish lifestyle himself. But by the end of his life, there wasn't much left because he paid for the publication of all his own books, apart from either or. They didn't sell at all. So that by the end of his life, there was very little money left indeed. But he left it to her because he said that our engagement has been like a marriage to me. We would nowadays maybe call it a virtual marriage. And I sometimes used to think that he loved her in absentia, as it were, and there was a kind of parallel with the way you could love Jesus, you could love an invisible, because Regina was invisible to him, you know, in this other life that she then wandered off into. But in fact, to sort of round up that story, her husband sort of intercepted the whole thing and wrote back and said, no, we am afraid we cannot accept your money. So yes, he tried all of his life. He was aware of the fact that he'd made this choice and of course that he'd paid for it with his happiness and he never completely came to terms with it. It tormented him all his life, I think. And would you describe him as an anti-rationalist and how consistent a writer do you think he was? I suppose nowadays, I think an editor actually would have edited down quite a lot of what he wrote, you know, because there is a lot of stuff in between the completely hard and gem-like and brilliant statements of what he's trying to say, which it can be a little tiring to read Kierkegaard. You have to concentrate the whole time. But I would definitely describe him as an anti-rationalist because I do think he, he had actually a very rational mind. He had a very modern, intellectual, analytical mind. I mean, one of his great contributions has been in the world of depth psychology.